The first reading is from Joel chapter 2 verses 11 to 13. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. He forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can enter it? Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The second reading is from Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we will live or die with you. I have spoken to you with greater frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for him, your deep sorrow, your utter concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorrow, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Glorly sorrow brings repentance that leads, leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what this glorly sorrow was produced in you, what earnestness, uh, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourself how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our encouragement, we were specially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true. So, our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well, and his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you.
Good morning. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. Years ago, when I first started in ministry, I um, used to help run this bloke's camp. Uh, It was on a farm, and I was in charge of the games. And on this farm, there was this giant wool shed, which had a, a great big concrete floor and a kind of raised platform around it. And to me, it looked like a kind of great arena. And so I had the idea that I should get the blokes to do an epic chariot race in this arena. I um, put down straw bales in the middle of the concrete, so it was kind of like a, a giant circuit. And I split the guys into four teams of about seven blokes in each team. And I gave them an hour to construct their chariots with um, cardboard fridge boxes and a ridiculous amount of gaff tape and a really long rope. And the idea was that they'd, they'd put one bloke in the chariot and he'd be given a, a pool noodle as a um, kind of weapon to whack other charioteers and other horses as he went around. And the other six blokes, they had to pull this guy and the chariot along with this long rope. Now, the only problem was that I, I tried to balance the team so that the kind of big jock kind of blokes would be in with the kind of small puny blokes, which sounds sensible, right? But I didn't realise how things crazy, how, how, just how crazy things would get once the start gun sounded. I mean, I've seen Ben-Hur, so I should have known, but I didn't. Because as soon as the race started, the craziness began. It was nuts. I was trying to re- referee chaos as four cardboard chariots and 24 blokes tore around this circuit. And one of the biggest problems was, because the teams were, were mixed with jocks and, and more gentle folk, the horses were having trouble pulling together as a team. At one point, I looked around from one patch of chaos to another patch of chaos to find that one of the smaller guys had somehow got the rope wrapped around his neck and either the team didn't notice or didn't care because nobody was stopping. I had to jump in front of all the chariots and wave them down and bring the whole thing to a stop. Sounds like fun, hey? Got no idea why Mark won't let me organise youth group games. Trying to have a team of different sized blokes pull effectively, you know, without popping anyone's head off, is harder than it sounds. But when you think about it, trying to get any team to work together well as a team pretty much never happens by default, no matter what it is. It always takes people pulling together, it always takes careful, committed, honest kind of input. In the letter that we're looking at and in the chapter of the letter that we looked at last week, one of the things Paul wrote was that the church at Corinth should make sure they had the right people in their team. Have a look at chapter 6 verse 14. He wrote, do not be yoked together with unbelievers to plough a field or to pull a load back then. They'd yoke animals together and partnering different animals that, that wanted to pull in different ways, it was a partnership that was bound to cause frustration to all involved and, and even damage. And Paul says to the people he's writing to, for them to be partnered with people who talk the talk but don't really want to walk with Jesus, that's only going to cause chaos and destruction in their spiritual lives as they pull in different directions. It was a a really vivid picture about what they should be avoiding as a church. 
But this is also a really helpful picture because it tells us how Paul sees his relationship with them and their relationship with each other. Do you see how he pictures their relationship? He pictures their relationship as they are yoked together. They are bound together, partnered. They're supposed to work together and pull in the same direction. And so in in chapter 6, verse 14, they're supposed to have in common righteousness in Jesus. They're supposed to have fellowship with each other in the light. They, They have harmony in Christ. They have agreement as the temple of God. They're supposed to have a really strong partnership with Paul and with each other. And like we saw last week, it's not a partnership like a business relationship. It's much more like a family relationship. In fact, even closer than family. Now we've, we've seen over and over again in this letter that the relationship between Paul and this church that he started is, is quite strained. It's been quite rocky. But from Paul's side of things, he considers his partnership with them so strong and, and so deep that it's, it's kind of like a soldier on the front line who's become bonded to his mates. He'd die for them without a second thought. Look at verse 2. He says, Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I don't say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. And today, in this part of the letter, we get a bit of an insight into what Paul's partnership with them looked like when things were pretty strained. And it gives us a bit of an insight into what our partnership should look like, even when things get strained for us too. So this is our first point. Being partners in God's kingdom always means great love and great frankness. Now we've seen what great love Paul has. He he says in verse 3, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. And then he says in verse 4, I have spoken to you with great frankness. Now, love and truth go together in Paul's mind. He's not held back love and he's not held back truth. Because being bound together as as partners, being yoked together in God's kingdom, means having great love for each other and it means having great frankness with each other. I don't think love and frankness comes naturally to most of us i think what comes naturally to most of us is is we're drawn to one or we're drawn to the other you know we're drawn to love or we're drawn to frankness but when we operate that way with with just one or just the other in the end we accomplish neither do you know what i mean some of us are kind of bleeding hearts We don't want to rock the boat with people. We just want to sympathize with them, listen and reassure them and and affirm them and encourage. And so we we hold back from saying the truth. And if that's all we do, what's the end result? Well, the end result is that we've not loved the person. If you hold back frankness when it's needed, you're not really loving that person at all. 
But then some of us, we're quite happy to be frank, quite happy to rock the boat and speak our minds and, and challenge and tell people the way that it is. And so we don't listen so much, we speak, we don't sympathise, we sermonise, don't reassure, we rebuke. And we don't walk with them, we want to leave them with it and walk away from them. And if that's all we do, what's the end result? Well, the end result is that we've not shown truth to that person. If you, if you hold back love, you're not showing the truth because you're contradicting with your life the truth that God is love. What God really cares about is love, not just love in words, love in action. Now, Paul knows his partnership with the Corinthians is, is far too important to hold back either love or truth. And, and so at no point has he done either. He values them, he, he values their partnership way too much. Now, it makes me wonder, do we value our partnership here with each other like Paul, like that? Like, would we describe our partnership with each other like he describes theirs? You know, with us, do we, do we feel a real commonality in righteousness? A, a, a palpable kind of fellowship in the light? Harmony in Jesus? Do we kind of, not just sense, but really know that we here together are God's temple, His Spirit lives amongst us together? Or like soldiers on the front line, could we say about each other, you have such a place in my heart that I would live or die with you? Do we have the, the great love and the great frankness that, that our kind of partnership needs and deserves? They say about um, Adelaide culture that, that we're polite. Have you heard that before? You know, you, you have people come from overseas or even those disgusting people on the East Coast, and, um, and they say, you're so polite in Adelaide. Um, but you know who I'm never polite to? I don't know about you, but I'm never really polite to family. Because being polite is, is too weak. It's too superficial. It's holding people at arm's length. I'm not, like, excessively rude to my family. I probably am a little bit rude at times, but... It's not so much that I'm rude, it's more that I'm so much more than polite. Our partnership here is, is way too important to be merely polite with each other. We need far greater love than politeness. You know, we need far greater frankness with each other than being polite. You know, Jesus is not the king of politeness whose manners faileth never. It's not what we sing. He's the King of Love, whose mercy faileth never. The true, the King of Truth. Now, as you know, our our vision as a church is to be loving God, loving God's people, and leading people to Jesus. But of course, just having that as our vision doesn't make us those people. It just reminds us that that's our calling. And just before before we move on from this, I, I think. We do struggle a bit here, like lots of people, to show great frankness. And I think if you sort of trace it back, the reason is because it is a struggle to, to show each other great love like this. And again, if, if you 
trace that back why is that i think maybe we we don't see just how great and important our partnership is and again just sort of tracing it back i i wonder if a lot of the reasons we don't see these things and feel these things is because we don't give each other the time that our partnership deserves and needs without giving each other time really can we expect there to be great love and great frankness giving each other time is so important it's it's kind of why we say be here every week you can be with your the people in your community group every week you possibly can get to things where you can waste time alongside each other like church camp like some of the walks we do but also we need to give it time to each other outside of those sorts of things too like going for walks with each other or having coffee or meals obviously we can't do it with everyone here but with at least some people our community group or those we serve alongside we need to give each other time like that because without time great love great frankness it's just not possible so we've seen great love being partner we've seen being partners in in god's kingdom always means great love and great frankness but the next thing we see is that great love and great frankness sometimes mean causing each other sorrow have a look at at verse 8 again paul writes even if i caused you sorrow by my letter i do not regret it though i did regret it i see that my letter hurt you but only for a little while yet now i'm happy not because you were made sorry but because your sorrow led you to repentance as we've seen things between paul and the church of corinth they've been rocky he loved them greatly and and he's spoken with great frankness and that's caused waves it's caused them sorrow we don't have that letter that he wrote them unfortunately so we don't really know um you know what it was that he said exactly we do know from his the other letter that we do have from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that he'd been pretty frank with them about a a bloke who was being sexually immoral among them uh, he wrote in that letter you can see it up there he wrote it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this and possibly this was the issue that's led to a lot of strain between paul and the corinthians because notice paul's not just his issue is not just with that bloke that he's talking about his issue is with them for their lack of frankness with that bloke and their lack of sorrow that instead of speaking the truth in love to this guy paul says they they happily tolerate what he's doing and they're even arrogant and what he what he speaks there are very frank words and quite possibly the the corinthians got upset with paul maybe they said you know hey paul it's, it's more complicated than that maybe they said hey we didn't realize we needed to be more frank with him we thought it was his problem not our problem maybe that's why paul now writes in in this letter in verse 11 see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation what alarm what longing what concern what readiness to see justice done at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this manner now it's impossible for us to know for sure but 
I wonder if, if the Corinthians have argued that it's more complicated than, than Paul thinks it is. And if Paul's written back and said, no, it, it, it's really not. Your lack of caring about what this guy is doing should make you wonder if you really care about Jesus. Because if you do, how can you not care when someone is dishonouring Jesus right under your nose like that? And if that's the case, then what we have here would be them repenting of not taking the situation seriously, while at the same time defending their innocence in saying, no, we really do care about Jesus. And I wonder if something like that's going on, but we won't know unless they dig up that letter, uh, 1.5 Corinthians, I'm not sure what you'd call it, but um, if we ever get that letter, we might be able to see, otherwise we'll never know for sure. But what we can know is that Paul shows us here that great love and great frankness sometimes mean causing each other sorrow. And Paul says, notice, he doesn't regret that. He says he knows he's hurt them, but he's happy. He's not not being a tool. He's not happy because he hurt them. He's happy because their sorrow has produced something good. Do you see what Paul is modelling here? He's neither being a coward nor a, a cowboy. So a coward sees someone living in a way that, that's going to walk them away from Jesus. And what do they do? Nothing. They're too scared that they might hurt the person or that it'll be awkward. And so they, they say nothing. And do you know what, what is guaranteed to happen in that case? Well, silence guarantees that that person is going to get hurt for sure. That's being a coward. But neither is Paul here modelling being a cowboy. You know, a cowboy someone's, sees someone living in a way that is walking them away from Jesus. And what do they do? Well, they fire from the hip. They're not careful or thoughtful. They don't care about the outcome. They act now and think later. They play fast and loose with people's feelings and emotions and spiritual lives and eternal salvation. Neither of these, these approaches is what Paul has done. Paul takes the risk, and it's always a risk to talk to someone like this, but then he's kept appealing to them, kept trying to win them over. He's thought it carefully about it. At one point, we see he's even regretted the approach he took because it didn't seem to work, but in the end, he's happy because they listen. If you have an accident you know, far away from medical help and you your arm gets crushed and pinned to the ground or something like that. You don't want a coward by your side and neither do you want a cowboy by your side. You know, if something needs to be get, do- get done and you need to get to medical help, you don't want a coward who's not going to be able to do it. You want someone who's got the courage to do it. But neither do you want a, a cowboy who kind of yanks something off now and says whoops later and watches you bleed out. When it comes to spiritual things, When it comes to our partnership here, we can't afford to be cowards with each other or cowboys with each other. Neither is showing great love and great frankness. Now again, it makes me wonder, do we see each other like this? Do we we see how much we need each other? Do we realise how important our our partnership is? Do Do you feel yoked together?
I think we're very easily so affected by our individualistic culture that we don't necessarily see it this way. We think about our partnership as, as if we're at the footy in the crowd. You know, when you're in the crowd at the footy, if you've been, you know, how much love do you have for, for your fellow supporters there? Well, it sort of probably depends which section you're in and who you go for. But it's not very much, is it? It's a little bit. How much frankness do you have with the other supporters? Not much. I reckon our culture leads us to treat our partnership here like we've taken a seat at the Adelaide Oval. Our culture leads us to think, I don't really know you. It's fun cheering for the same team and feeling like we're a part of something together. But if you're not really playing, helping the team, or if you're not really behaving well, I'm not going to do much about that. But actually here, it's more like we're at the Oval, but we are on the field as players. Our partnership is more like that. And unless there's great love and great frankness between players on the field, there's not going to be great footy. And it's like that with us. We need great love, great frankness, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard. And that means sometimes we've got to say things that may hurt each other at times. We need to say things out of love because if someone's walking away from Jesus, it, it's just far too important than saying nothing. Now, of course, there's, there's kind of like two pointy ends to this. One is, are we willing to speak? You know, not as cowards, not as cowboys. But the other pointy end is, are we willing for others to speak to us if they need to? You know, if someone lovingly but frankly speaks to me, how, how am I going to respond? And now it might not be because I'm, I'm walking away from Jesus or I'm clearly walking away from Jesus, but if I'm not able to respond well when someone says something small to me, how on earth are they going to be able to speak to me when it's something big? So could you imagine asking someone or someone asking you the way you use alcohol? Is that good for you? Is it honouring Jesus? The way you talk about women, the way you identify them by how they look, by what they wear, by sexual innuendo, is that honouring them? Is that honouring Jesus? The way you speak about people who think differently to you, about COVID or about climate change or about the voice, the way you write them off, argue over the top of them, or these string of romantic relationships that you're having are they healthy are you trying to fill a deeper need all the way as soon as you you feel busy or disgruntled you drop your connections with your community group with your church or your boyfriend your girlfriend are they leading you to jesus or away from him and could you imagine someone asking you something like that or you asking someone something like that because that's exactly where great love and great frankness will take you. Even though sometimes it hurts. And what I'd, I'd love us to do today is, is not sort of have that conversation that we've been putting off having. I want something more ambitious than that. I'd love it if this was our way of life. I'd love it if, if we so valued our partnership that we, 
we really kept going which we do but kept going at this at making our relationships deeper so that as the issues come up it's much easier and more natural for us to be frank in our relationships so we've seen being partners in God's kingdom it means great love great frankness always we've seen great love and great frankness sometimes means causing each other sorrow but then we see sorrow that leads to salvation is never without repentance look again at at verse 9 Paul says I am happy not because you were made sorrow but because your sorrow led you to repentance for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death and do you know what what's hard I'm sure many of you know this getting kids to say sorry is it's just incredibly hard right do you know what's next to impossible getting them to feel sorry okay now I don't know why I get so frustrated by it because adults aren't necessarily that much better but notice here what Paul says that even saying sorry even feeling sorry is not enough it just brings death he says when it comes to God it's absolutely no use feeling sorry for what we've done and then that's where it ends godly sorrow brings repentance like we heard in the all ages spot repentance literally means turning around and going in the opposite direction so feeling sorry for how we've treated God is 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 useless if we then don't turn away from the things that we've been doing that are hurting him and instead turn to him someone points out to me that that what I'm doing is is betraying Jesus as Lord and Savior and I feel awful about it I feel hurt by it and sad by it but then don't turn away and turn back to him I'm just walking on to death now we we see this everywhere in the Bible it's not just here Uh, it's it's kind of like what I said last week about my poor friend from South America you you know whose wife felt sorry but never actually repented of being unfaithful to him and kept going back to the other bloke. In his um, earlier letter, Paul, Paul made this really clear to him, just after he'd said that they should have taken what that guy was doing more seriously. In chapter 6, he says, well, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and Paul's not saying we won't struggle with these things with greed and and drunkenness and sexual immorality but he is saying if we don't repent of them and turn to Jesus if instead my life says who cares if I'm if I'm greedy who cares if I'm sexually immoral if I'm a drunk if we go down that line then what we're really saying is who cares about Jesus who cares if he's my Lord and Savior and I could feel awful about what I'm doing but all the while I could keep marching myself away from Jesus and on to hell godly sorrow is never without repentance and repentance always means turning away from something in horror 
and turning to Jesus. Now, we are partners here in something that really matters. This is not a game with cardboard boxes and gaff tape. We're partners in salvation. Partners in helping each other live for Jesus. Partners in leading other people to see what it means to live for Jesus. And the reality is that that means at times that we have to have hard conversations with each other. So I just want to finish by giving just a couple of tips on how we should shape these kind of conversations. So here's the first thing. The first thing is, is we should do everything out of love. That's Paul's example here. He only opens his mouth because he loves them and he, he wants what's best for them. The next thing is we should go to them, if we're going to have a conversation like this, we should go to someone on our own, not gossip or talk or even try and seek validation. You know, is this really an issue? We should just go straight to them and them only. And when we do, we should assume the best as we go. You know, this doesn't mean every, you let everything slide, but it does mean sometimes you do let things slide. But it means even as you're talking to people, you're assuming that there's more to the picture that you just haven't seen. And you're, you're trying to find out. Next thing is, don't go self-righteously. As though we don't sin or as if that sin even we could never be prone to ourselves. The next thing says to be direct, clear, honest, frank. You know, don't be so convoluted in the conversation that you sort of both leave the conversation wondering what it was that was actually discussed. You know, be frank, be clear. Ask them what they think God thinks about it and what they think God thinks they should do about it. And then finally, don't give up on them. You know, a conversation like that is, is, is actually more like opening a book and, and reading the first page rather than kind of closing the book and thinking the job's done. It's the first page of an ongoing story where you should walk, we should walk with each other. And even if someone hasn't seemed to respond at all, make sure you follow up and have another chat with them. We need to be with each other in the long run. Everything out of love, on your own, Assume the best, not self-righteous, frank, but not giving up on each other. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, you know our hearts and our nature, the way we are often either drawn to what we think is love and kindness and not rocking the boat, or we're drawn to truthfulness, what we think is truth, that's brash and bold and but not actually committed and kind and faithful we pray lord that you would do your work in us by your spirit to make us more like jesus that we would hold great love for each other alongside great frankness that we would have the conversations that we need to at times and that we would receive those conversations well we pray in all of this lord that we would see that jesus is the Lord and Saviour we need who gave his life for us and that turning our back on him would just be insanity. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us as a community to really live out having Jesus as our Lord and Saviour for his glory, we pray. Amen.